KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. The presidential vote count continues as the legal challenges mount. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego County hopes to ramp up COVID testing to stay out of the purple tier. People just aren't wearing their masks. They're having too many gatherings in, at their homes. Uh, they're, they're not keeping their social distance. They're just not doing the things that they used to be doing. North County voters render a split decision on development. And if you've had enough of real politics, some political movies might calm your nerves. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. The counting is still underway. An update this morning saw Joe Biden's lead grow in Nevada, Donald Trump's lead shrink in Georgia and Pennsylvania, but no new states have been called for either candidate as our marathon presidential election continues. According to the news organizations keeping track, momentum is moving in Biden's direction, even as the margins in the outstanding races remain razor thin. And an array of legal challenges has already been launched by Donald Trump's lawyers, with Trump himself repeatedly demanding that states should stop the count. I'm joined by Stephen Goggin, a lecturer in the Political Science Department of San Diego State University, who has expertise on campaigns and elections. And welcome, Stephen. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Now, this was the outcome that many political observers were dreading. Very narrow margins and a potentially disputed election. What do you make of the situation so far? Well, so far, it's been quite interesting because it's quite close, right, in multiple states, not just one where it's kind of razor thin. And the states, right, are different in that in Nevada and Arizona, right, Biden currently leads, whereas in Pennsylvania and Georgia, right, uh, President Trump currently leads and many of the late or the arriving ballots, right, or late counting ballots um, are going in Biden's direction. So he might actually end up overtaking Trump there. Um, right. The legal challenges are kind of pretty widespread. Right. But notably, they've all been filed in Pennsylvania and Georgia and Michigan, states in which Trump kind of has the early lead. But ballots that arrived by Election Day right, are still being counted and still being added into the totals there. And his lead may very well disappear. Now, Americans have been asked to be patient while the numbers continue to come in for this election. But can you explain some of the reasons why the results are taking so long? Sure. So I think it's really instructive at looking kind of at the difference between Ohio and Pennsylvania. So Ohio also had a large share of mail-in ballots, as did many other states, given the kind of the ongoing pandemic. 
Um, but in uh, Pennsylvania and in a number of other Midwestern states, right, laws were not changed uh, earlier this summer in response to other electoral changes uh, given the, the COVID-19 crisis. Um, and so in fact, in Pennsylvania, right, the ballots couldn't be processed or opened or started to be counting counted even if they arrived before election day until election day. And so then it, of course, takes quite a bit of time to count millions of ballots. Um, so we're seeing that play out here. Um, but other states, right, had also millions of mail-in ballots. They just were processed and counted before the election. And I think it really highlights, right, how relatively small differences in kind of the legal requirements and statutory requirements different states have for how their elections operate that can make a huge difference in how this plays out, uh, because we could have known Pennsylvania much earlier if this law had, in fact, been changed. Now, Donald Trump has said repeatedly that the U.S. Supreme Court, which has three of his nominees on it now, will settle the election. We remember the high court settled the Bush v. Gore dispute in 2000. Do you think the high court would do that again? I think there are a lot of key differences between kind of what happened in 2000 and this election. Um, in particular, then it came down to a very narrow margin of one state, Florida. And in fact, the initial count was completed. Um, and there are also a lot of kind of technical errors with the butterfly ballot and kind of hanging chads and everything there. Um, whereas in this case, right, there are very few kind of errors or problems or kind of violations of various statutes or constitutional requirements in these states. And so many of the challenges that the Trump campaign has filed are relatively thin on the merits and are mostly trying to kind of simply delay or ask for additional access, not directly challenging a number of ballots. Uh, the Supreme Court did weigh in right earlier about kind of possibly segregating late arriving ballots in Pennsylvania. Uh, but in many cases, the way the counts are shaping up, it's looking like it's not going to come down to hundreds of votes in kind of all of these states. And the result will be kind of quite a bit more clear than it was in 2000. So the ability of the court to intervene uh, in a particular way and kind of push the election in one way or another is much, much smaller. How long could such a legal challenge go on if indeed the Trump administration gets a ruling from a lower court and then wants to move it on to the Supreme Court? How, how long could that continue before we had to have an answer to this election? Well, so if we work backwards, right, the Electoral College, the electors in each state meet in mid-December. And so theoretically, right, things could be drawn out until then. Um, and that's part of the reasoning behind the Bush v. Gore decision is kind of finalizing it in those, those means. Um, but many of the cases, right, we've already seen, right, a handful of cases either being withdrawn by GOP officials today um, or dismissed by judges in, in state, in both state and federal court. And so many of these challenges were likely to resolve themselves in the coming days and weeks, um, because a number of them are simply asking for more access to the counting process or ballots or other things, which could reasonably be granted without really changing the result or changing anything, just kind of delaying the process slightly more. Um, and it's possible even with those delays, we'll still have a clear answer in the very near future about the kind of the outcome of the election or the likely outcome, even if, you know, maybe dozens or hundreds of ballots are contested here and there around the country, it wouldn't necessarily be consequential for the overall result. Now, one thing that Joe Biden mentioned yesterday that hasn't been commented on that much is that Biden is comfortably ahead in the popular vote. Does that strengthen his case if he should win the Electoral College, too? Well, you know, legally winning the popular vote doesn't kind of exactly matter. But I think from a public sentiment perspective and from the kind of willingness of other GOP officials, particularly in state legislatures, right, and others that have to kind of certify 
um, kind of are involved in the electoral college process, I think kind of weakens their hand and possibly trying other kind of tactics later on that would be kind of relatively or quite unpopular, arguably. Uh, and so while legally and formally it doesn't matter, I think it strengthens the hand kind of in um, kind of early claims for victory. And by early, I mean simply kind of as soon as it becomes quite clear and definitely kind of diminishes the ability of President Trump to claim kind of the need for further delay or that this thing is actually closer than it might actually be. And how are you hoping the American public reacts while this election is being resolved? Well, so we've already seen a few reactions that are maybe not the best, right, with kind of protests and rallies uh, in Arizona and um, in Michigan in response to this that kind of got a little uncivil at times. Uh, but in general, one of the big lessons we know from political science, right, is that many people follow the elite cues and follow what politicians are talking about. And so the hope generally is whatever the outcome of the election is, right, is that the leaders of both sides and the kind of the president tweet, president's current tweets, right, are an indication of maybe the opposite of that. That is, mm -hmm. once the results are clear, that politicians do kind of fall in line and respect, right, what the, the kind of the results are showing them. Um, because people generally will listen to right, various calls to arms or other things that might come from, from leadership. And so the hope right, is, is that the transition, while kind of will automatically happen through the electors being selected in the Electoral right. College, that the process is not necessarily uh, messy. Stephen Goggin, a lecturer in the Political Science Department at SDSU, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Latino voters overwhelmingly supported Joe Biden for the presidency, but a growing share of Latinos voted for President Donald Trump nationwide and here in California. That's according to an election eve poll of more than 5,000 Latinos across the United States. KQED's Farida Jamala Romero reports. David Hernandez is 72. He was born and raised in L.A. and chairs the Los Angeles Hispanic Republican Club. He says he voted for Donald Trump because he was the better candidate for the economy. The fiscal policies and prosperity over the past almost four years, that has really been a deciding factor. He says many Latinos work in industries hard hit by COVID-19, like construction and the restaurant industry. And he says Latino Trump supporters agree with the president's push to reopen the economy faster. Well, there is a concern over the disease itself. There is a more uh, immediate concern that they're not going to be able to pay their rent, that they're not going to be able to take care of their families. We won't have a full picture of how Latinos voted for a couple of months, but the American Election Eve poll gives a glimpse. It found that 16% of California Latinos supported Trump in 2016. This year, it was 22 percent. Pollster Gary Segura of Latino Decisions says Democrats didn't do enough to engage with these voters. There was a late outreach by the Democrats and the Biden campaign. So if you look at where the Biden campaign really invested money in talking to Latinos, it certainly wasn't in California. Still, the poll found that while a majority of white voters supported Trump nationwide, almost three quarters of Latinos turned out for Biden. If Latinos were the only voters, the election results would be blindingly clear. Clarissa Martinez de Castro is with Unidos U.S., one of the advocacy nonprofits that sponsored the poll. Another thing that's clear, she says, 
Latinos are a growing force deciding presidential elections and should not be ignored. Anfarida Javala Romero. Coronavirus cases are still on the rise in San Diego County, and we're at risk of falling back down into the more restrictive purple tier next week. That would require restaurants, places of worship, gyms and movie theaters to stop all indoor operations and affect retail stores too. However, there are ways to avoid this fate, some things the county could do and some things that we as residents could do. Here to talk about where we are is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, thanks and for joining us and welcome back. Thanks for having me. So now, what exactly has happened to put us back on the brink of falling back into the purple tier? How much did the rate of COVID cases go up? Uh, right. So we've we've just seen the, uh, the number of cases that are following in this one-week window that the state uses to calculate our local case rate every week uh, increase and increase. And now now it's gotten to the point where it's it's over eight cases per hundred thousand residents in a single week, and that uh, that is enough that. Uh, that it's just difficult uh, to drive the numbers down under the uh, the magical limit of seven cases uh, per 100,000. So, How do you think we got into this position? Why are those numbers going up? Uh, you know, that, that came up in uh, the county's press conference yesterday uh, that they hold every week. And they said, you know, people just aren't wearing their masks. They're having too many gatherings in, at their homes. Uh, they're, they're not keeping their social distance. They're just not doing the things that they used to be doing uh, to keep this virus from spreading. Okay, so the purple tier looms. Here's what Supervisor Nathan Fletcher said about our situation yesterday. We'll have to wait until next week to see what our numbers are next week. Uh, But it would take a significant change in trajectory, uh, given everything that we've been witnessing over the course uh, of the last month, uh, in order for us to avoid that. But, Paul, we don't necessarily have to fall into that purple tier, right? I mean, one thing that could change the trajectory is an increase in in testing. Explain to us why an increase in testing could help keep San Diego in the red tier. That's right. So for one thing, uh, you know, we're looking back a week. They don't go by the most immediate numbers. They look back a week uh, next Monday when they calculate the new rate. And so it's the number of cases that have fallen into this week ago period. Uh, I, I ran the numbers yesterday and we're at 6.6 uh, cases per 100,000 as of yesterday. Uh, so, we, you know, for the next three or four days, we will see more cases come in, but not all of the new cases that come in will fall into that week ago window. Uh, so, so for one thing, uh, the case rate just might not rise past, uh, you know, too far past uh, seven cases. Um, And and then the other thing is that the state has this system where they adjust downward your case rate based on the number of tests that you do in that week ago, seven-day window. So if we have more test results that come in that fall in that window, and it puts our overall average number of tests above uh, the state median rate, then we can can see our, our overall rate reduced significantly up to 40%. So there's still a lot of hope uh, to be had that, that even if we go over the that magic threshold, that there is a possibility mm. that the number can still be reduced. It's kind of ironic that more testing could help us bring our, our rate down, but that's the way it works. What about hospital rates, Paul? I mean, that's the main goal is to keep hospitals from becoming overwhelmed. What would it take to overwhelm them at this point? Right. So, uh, you know, at this point, we really haven't come close to overwhelming hospitals. Uh, Generally, the number of COVID patients in hospital beds on any given day is about 6% of all people hospitalized on a given day. So we really 
we haven't seen a massive impact on the hospital beds. It, it would take a really big surge to swamp our hospitals at this point. Um, but it's also important to remember, and experts have hammered this home for me time and time again, it's not just about hospital beds. You've got to have people to staff those hospital beds, and it gets really uh, the most dicey in intensive care units where you need highly specialized critical care nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists, and these people don't grow on trees. So, you know, you can easily burn them out, uh, and, uh, you know, there's this entire um, traveling nurse and doctor system where many will move to other states that have a higher need and there's some indication that that's happening right now so uh, you know even if we have beds that doesn't necessarily guarantee we're going to have uh, the, the necessary professionals that we need to care for people who end up in a very serious situation in a hospital you know if you look at the map of the counties who are in different tiers all the counties surrounding san diego county to the north and east of us are already in that lower uh, purple tier, which presumably doesn't help, does it? No, no, especially if you have a lot of people who are traveling uh, here and there and maybe for work, maybe for family. Uh, you know, the, there is a fair amount of mixing in Southern California. It's not as if these uh, borders between counties are really very firm at all. Uh, you know, this is, uh, this is one mega region that has a lot of um, social reasons why people uh, go different places. So, so having rates that are higher in other areas bordering us certainly does put pressure on our local rate. Now, of course, local businesses dread dropping back into the, the lower tier again. Have we heard anything from them about what these latest numbers could mean? Yeah, I mean, we know that uh, if we do fall to the purple tier, if we get a second purple score next week, that there would be a, a three-day period in which uh, many different types of businesses would have to stop operating indoors. That would be restaurants, places of worship, uh, movie theaters. Uh, businesses a few weeks back said we are not going to go along with any any such outdoor move. If it does happen, we're just, we're not going to comply. Uh, the county said yesterday very firmly that, you know, we are going to enforce. If we get complaints about businesses operating indoors that shouldn't be, we're going to, you know, move forward with enforcement action. Um, so it really sets up quite a quite an interesting tension, uh, you know, just how far will local law enforcement be willing to go in enforcing these rules uh, for restaurants and other places that are really just trying to survive. Well, it's not just the county. I guess it's us that could make a difference too, huh? Because the county did crack down on, on social gatherings over Halloween uh, with cease and desist orders. So what do these latest numbers say about, you know, any Thanksgiving plans ahead, for example? Right. I mean, I think it's a warning to all of us that there are real consequences of not following some of the very simple things that people are being asked to do. I think it probably just means that we all need to be a little mindful uh, that, that our individual actions just really have a um, cumulative effect in our area that could really hurt our favorite restaurant, for example. We've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Alison St. John, along with Maureen Cavanaugh. 
Two ballot measures that would have built over 700 new homes in San Diego's North County got very different receptions from voters in this week's election. In Poway, voters approved a new housing development to be built on the old Stone Ridge Golf Course, while in Oceanside, voters solidly rejected a planned development on what is currently farmland in Morrow Hills. Here to tell us more about why the measures met such different fates is KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, welcome. Thanks for having me, Allison. So now these measures had a lot in common, didn't they? They both even had the word farms in their names, North River Farms in Oceanside and the farm in Poway. But how were they different? Why did one pass and one fail? Yes, they were both very similar, but Measure L in Oceanside's um, The North River Farms Project would have gone in a neighborhood already dominated by commercial farming. So there's already tons of farms in place. The Yes on L side argued that their development would have preserved farming as well as um, adding new housing opportunities. But, you know, the opponents argued that the housing wouldn't be affordable and that the new homes would actually create an infrastructure problems um, as well as pose a fire hazard due to the, the roads that are there now. And in Poway, you know, residents are currently dealing with a deteriorating country club that is really an eyesore. I mean, it's graffitied, it's abandoned, there's overgrown plants, the windows are broken. So they're just not happy with what they currently have there. And it does pose a fire hazard because of all the overgrown plants. And so their project, the farm, it presents a better opportunity for the building that, you know, currently is being used for nothing. So let's look at the Oceanside Measure L. The developer spent around $2 million on the campaign, and yet the opponent still defeated it with uh, just like $10,000 in campaign funding. What made Oceanside residents so determined not to see this project built? Yeah, I mean, I live here in Oceanside, and I saw Yes on L marketing everywhere, and their graphics, their marketing, everything was on point. You can just tell that they poured money into this project. And it really was a big project. I mean, supporters of Measure L, you know, proposed that the farming area that they were going to build was going to be 68 football fields. So that is a pretty big farm, you know. But the thing is that the area already serves an agricultural purpose. So there's already farms and fruit being grown there. And I think, you know, the Oceanside residents were just really hesitant about change being brought to an area that has gone unchanged in such a long time. They feared, you know, the traffic congestion, wildfire hazards, and just developments overtaking this last agricultural land left here in Oceanside. And I I really think that's what kept it from passing. Now, in the case of the Stone Ridge Country Club golf course in Poway, that was owned by L.A.-based real estate developer Michael Schlesinger, who bought several golf courses in San Diego County and then shut them down as unprofitable. And he did make himself pretty unpopular, didn't he? And yet voters finally decided to approve this project. Why? Yeah, Schlesinger definitely isn't very popular around here because it's not the first time that, you know, he's let a property sit and get to the condition that Stone Ridge is in now. Um, and, you know, with with the farm project, I think his partnership with Eric McNamara, you know, really helped move this project forward. Um, it's not just a new housing development, which is what Schlesinger has usually proposed. The farm comes with perks that I think really intrigue Poway residents. Um, This time around, um, planners say that they have a specific plan, an environmental impact report, and city council approved maps that are pretty set in stone. So I, I think that this time around, because it's not just a housing development, it comes with perks for Poway residents. It really helped 
move this forward. And I think just the scale of the project itself, I mean, we're only talking about 160 new homes compared to his usual thousand, you know, proposed homes being built into this new development. Will any of those homes be affordable? You know, well, what is affordable nowadays in San Diego, Allison? If you mean, will they be low-income housing? I don't think so. Um, Their website states that there will be a maximum of 160 new homes in the development. If they were to be priced in today's market, they would be ranging from $800,000 to $1.4 million. And so now those home options will range from five bedrooms to three bedrooms. So there are some options. And, you know, I'm not really sure when we'll see them. It really depends on the market. If in, let's say, three years from now, the market goes down, we may be, we may be seeing some more affordable pricing. But as far as low-income housing, I don't think they will be. Probably not. Yeah. It's very difficult to get a, a master plan community passed by voters these days. You know, we heard about the uh, Newland Sierra project up north of San Marcos, for example, that was rejected. Do you think the Poway development bucked a trend here? I mean, definitely. These big developments rarely ever get passed. And I think in Poway, you know, I think it's just that this project itself just came in a much smaller scale compared to the North River Farms and the Newland Sierras in San Marcos. Oceanside's Measure L proposed 585 new homes, and that was a number that they already reduced from the original nearly 1,000 homes that they proposed to build. Newland Sierra's proposed over 2,000 new homes. So because this project itself is proposing 160, I think the project itself just landed on voters a lot easier than the bigger, you know, 500 and up new homes. So I think the scale of it, what was really really resonated with voters. Right. So now that the voters in Oceanside have rejected uh, Measure L, what do they say about how the city will be able to meet its state-mandated requirements to to build hundreds of new homes in the next uh, few years? That's one of the arguments from Yes on L. They said that, you know, the need for housing in Oceanside is, there really is a need for it in Oceanside. And this would have brought, this would have met those needs. And so now, I think it really, you know, goes back to city council. Of course, we're in the middle of elections. So it just really depends on the the new council members and new mayor. You know, they need to find places that voters will be happy where these new developments will go in. I know that the developer of North River Farms already built an affordable housing development here in Oceanside. So I think they just, you know, maybe need to look into other other pieces of land that maybe don't hold such a sentimental value to Oceansiders. We've been speaking with KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Allison. The Department of Veterans Affairs Health System is welcoming more patients back after months of tight restrictions due to COVID-19. But VA clinics are reopening at a slower pace than many civilian health facilities. From Tampa, Stephanie Colombini reports for the American Homefront Project. You won't see rows of parked carts on the first floor of the Tampa VA's parking garage. Instead, hospital beds, computers, medication carts, and an x-ray machine. The pandemic has affected the way all health centers operate, but this is one of the few that's moved most of its emergency department outside. 
Patients with issues like a sprained ankle can actually receive treatment in the garage and never have to step foot inside the hospital. Dr. Timothy McGurk runs this operation. The goal of setting up this out here was to protect our very vulnerable patients inside and our staff. Tampa stands out even among other VA medical centers with its parking garage set up, but all of the agency's facilities are taking steps to prevent the spread of COVID-19. While many civilian health facilities have allowed patients to come in for routine care for months and even opened up for visitors, that's largely still off limits at many VAs. McGurk says VA patients are typically older and sicker than the general population, making potential outbreaks more dangerous. They have heart disease, they have kidney disease, they have lung disease. That makes them more at risk. Plus, we don't have any pediatrics here. We don't have young, healthy people for the most part. 62-year-old Navy veteran David Tootle pulled into the garage with severe back pain. Because of the pandemic, his other doctor's visits lately have been remote. Telephone, but not video. I'm not techno like that. <laughs> While the VA has increased virtual care by about 1,500% since March, many veterans have been anxious to return to face-to-face -face visits. Some outpatient and specialty clinics that were shut down for months have gradually started welcoming patients who need hands-on procedures or can't use virtual care. Down the block from the main hospital, the Tampa VA's audiology clinic is offering drive-up hearing aid repair. Army Reserve veteran Michael Kelly pulled up in his car and a staff member wearing a mask and gloves asked him to hand her his hearing aid through the window. Can you give me your left one? Because I think I need to change the tubing on that real quick. At 80, Kelly says he's very concerned about getting COVID-19 and is grateful for the drive-up option. There's no contact and uh, I feel very safe. This was a rare outing for Kelly. He spent most of the year home with his wife. You know, you, you feel confined but uh, we're following the rules, basically. Hopefully it'll be all over soon, but you don't know. Coronavirus cases have spiked in many parts of the country and among VA patients. Paula Myers, chief of the Tampa VA's audiology section, says she's not ready to ease restrictions. Flu season is just around the corner. Bars have just opened in our community. Um, we don't know if there's going to be a huge second wave all of a sudden. So while we have this process that veterans finally know is this is how it is for right now, we want to sustain that for right now. VA officials say despite the need for caution, it's important veterans don't avoid care. They encourage vets to stay in touch with their providers to ensure they get the help they need. I'm Stephanie Colombini in Tampa. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. A pilot project to replace police intervention with social workers to help San Diego's homeless population has been called a success. So last week, the San Diego City Council officially approved the Coordinated Street Outreach Program. The aim is for caseworkers to establish relationships with unsheltered people, direct them to needed services, and eventually find many homeless residents a permanent place to live. Joining me is Hanan Scrapper. She's Regional Director of the San Diego Office of People Assisting the Homeless, or PATH. And Hanan, welcome to the program. 
Thank you so much for having me. How are you measuring the success of the pilot program? So we track our numbers really closely. For example, this past year, you know, our outreach specialist it started with one outreach specialist and we have a second one now. We were able to see 219 unique individuals and we were able to house 59 of those individuals, um, which 22 were permanent homes. Street to home is something that we've seen to be really successful when we're working with clients in that person-centered approach. And that's 41% positive rate that we're seeing as a street outreach program, which is highly successful. And through our engagement, we've identified 37 individuals who are new to the homeless system or haven't touched the homeless system in more than two years. So that's been really effective. Why do you think replacing police with social workers is having such a better outcome? So we don't see it as replacing um, the police at all. I think we're seeing it in a way of when you have someone experiencing a mental health crisis and they are out on the street, sending our mental health clinicians to be able to respond to those individuals and work with them on de-escalating the situation and connecting them to those appropriate resources, we see that to be hugely beneficial to our community. Now, San Diego City Council President Georgette Gomez says expanding this program is a natural extension of the city's new effort to combat homelessness. She spoke at last week's city council meeting. This is a continuation of shifting how we're responding to this crisis. Um, in terms of really having a more people-centered approach, both by how we're reaching out to them, where we're placing them, and how we're supporting them to restore their lives. Anand, tell us more about how PATH operates its outreach program. I read it's divided into two different service elements. Correct. So we will have a rapid response team, which are going to be equipped with individuals who are able to work seven days a week. We'll have the teams at least until 10 p.m. being able to respond to immediate responses uh, that stakeholders, community members are seeing in their communities and making that linkage. And immediate access to shelter is going to be really critical for those who are interested in in accessing a bed for the night or um, for a little bit of time until they identify other housing options. And then our other team is going to be the mobile homelessness resolution team. They are uh, very much like our, our traditional outreach specialists, but they will do street-based case management, carrying a caseload of at least 15 where they're working with each those each of those individuals and creating a plan, a housing plan that makes sense and the client identifies to be a priority to them and then carrying them through the system and helping them with system navigation and resource connection. So that's going to be the team breakout. We will also have peer support specialists who are going to be part of the team and working with our clients and connecting with them on that level of lived experience and being able to understand the situation and really just from a humanistic approach of like, what are your needs? And, you know, let's, let's make the connection happen. Now with the rapid response team, how are they alerted that someone has an urgent issue and what constitutes an urgent issue? I think we have spoken about the possibility of using uh, the get it done app and going through that and then in other situations, they will most likely can call our um, our team directly um, and say, hey, we have this situation. I think emergency will vary, right? Health and safety is um, an area where we want to look at, make sure people are safe first, um, and then from there, de-escalate any situation that might come up. 
I think in some cases, what we've been seeing is really someone who is sleeping on the side and is a little bit of a danger to themselves because they're not able to fully like see the situation in front of them or maybe going through a mental health crisis in that moment that we're able to actually just sit with them and process and talk through and identify how we can get them to the help that they need. So I think the emergency aspect is going to vary and we're going to have to try out what makes sense and what works uh, for the community as well as the team. Now, currently the program operates in North Park and City Heights. Into what other communities is it going to be expanded? It's a city-funded project, so our goal is to look at throughout San Diego. But we will be working with um, our council members and local districts and identifying. We're going to use a, a you know our point in time number and census tract to identify the hot spots and where do we need to target and focus. And then being able to um, have people specifically um, located in those neighborhoods and districts to be able to begin building that relationship. We're still working out those details. So I think once we have that, we'll be able to share that. And finally, Hanan, what would you say are the biggest challenges to your organization when trying to get people off the streets and into permanent housing? I think the biggest challenge is um, access to permanent housing. Um, As many of us know, we have a shortage of affordable permanent housing not just in San Diego, but um, California and um, other states. And so the vacancy rates we are seeing um, is really, it makes it hard for us to identify those places where our clients can actually call home and that they're in their home for long-term. That's really our biggest struggle is finding those affordable housing units where our clients can reside in. I've been speaking with Hanan Scrapper. She's Regional Director of PATH San Diego. And Hanan, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Allison St. John. On the eve of the last presidential election, KPBS film critic Beth Accomando spoke with TCM host Ben Mankiewicz about the cable channel's showcase of political films. Four years later, those films are once again worthy of checking out. Enjoy this interview from the Cinema Junkie podcast archives. You've grouped these films into kind of smaller packages. One collection is called Born to Run, which is kind of looking at more the campaigning process. One of the films is one of my favorites because I love Spencer Tracy, and that's The Last Hurrah. So tell me a little bit about why you picked this film and what you liked about it. It's strange to call any movie your favorite John Ford movie because just by virtue of picking a favorite John Ford movie, you leave out so many great films. But I will say that this is certainly the John Ford movie that I think is most overlooked when discussing great John Ford movies. I think it's his only really political movie. Pouring across the screen from the tumultuous pages of the most powerful bestseller of our time, brimming over with the juices of rough and tumble life, comes a galaxy for greatness as two-time Academy Award-winning actor Spencer Tracy and four-time Academy Award-winning director John Ford 
create the most unforgettable character in screen history, Frank Skeffington. I was born here, Adam. See those two windows? Uh-huh. Martin Burke. You mean the Cardinal? Mm-hmm. Yes, this was it. We were all born down here together. Then drifted our different ways somehow. And, you know, it comes uh, pretty late in Tracy's career, and Tracy essentially in the movie plays the mayor of Boston. It's never completely referred to as Boston, but it's pretty clear as a large New England city uh, what we're talking about. And it's just a, it's, it's a really layered political movie because you can't, it's Spencer Tracy, you can't help but root for him here as the mayor but there's plenty of corruption to pick at, and he's had a political machine, which he presumes will put him into office again here in one final hurrah. This is going to be his one last hurrah. This is going to be his last election. It is layered. It is complicated. My father uh, loved this movie, and my dad was you know, Bobby Kennedy's press secretary and ran George McGovern's campaign. And he always thought from the moment he saw it when it came out when he was 35 years old, that it was pretty close to as this is as good as Hollywood can do politics. This doesn't turn politicians into buffoons, which Hollywood does from time to time, but it also sort of gives us the the complicated nature of uh, of how political campaigns work. Another film I want to highlight from your Born to Run group is one of my favorite political films, which is The Candidate. And this has Robert Redford as kind of this unwilling candidate who gets drafted into a campaign. And this film was made in 1972, but it is still so on the money for the kind of commentary it makes. When I talk to my dad about political movies, the two movies that he said most accurately reflect the campaign were The Last Hurrah and The Candidate. I mean, The Candidate is so realistic that it feels like a documentary. I think it's important to note what subjects we haven't discussed. We've completely ignored the fact that this is a society divided by fear, hatred, and violence. And until we talk about just what this society really is, then I don't know how we're going to change it. From start to finish, it's terrific. Uh, uh, Redford, who is, you know, I also think just this, another actor who uh, can say volumes without speaking, and I think is supremely underrated. But in The Candidate, Redford plays, a, I think he's an environmental lawyer, and he's the son of a former governor, played by Melvin Douglas, and as you say, sort of drafted to run a Senate campaign, and the beauty of it is, hey man, you can say whatever you want, because you're never going to win. This is an establishment candidate uh, who can't be beaten. And then it takes us through that campaign and how the campaign changes even sort of the most ideologically pure and uncorrupt among us. But it's a really good lesson for people who are overly idealistic about politics. And I don't want to I don't want to crush people's idealism, but 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 politics works in part because it, it probably crushes too much idealism. But this is a good perspective on on what being part of that system does, and it does it even to the best politicians who sort of accomplish the most good for the most people. So uh, it has one of the great uh, last lines of, of, any, uh, of any political movie of all time, too, the candidate does. All right, we won't give that away. But yeah. you also have a group of films that are a little less serious, which are the political comedies. And if I had to recommend just two films from this group of films, it would be The Candidate 
and The Great McGinty. I love that movie. <laughs> Uh, nothing wrong with uh, with uh, recommending the the Great McGinty. First of all, it's never wrong to recommend a Preston Sturgis movie. This was uh, made really at the beginning of what was an amazing four year run for Sturgis. Uh, just a, a remarkable set of movies, and it, it begins in many ways with the Great McGinty, which again he wrote and directed. Brian Dunleavy, Akeem Tamirov, uh, William Demarest. It's such a terrific political movie and funny and gen- genuinely funny. The petition was filed by Dr. Jonas J. Jarvis, chairman of the Civic Purity League, Incorporated. Ah, they're always talking about graft, but they forget. If it wasn't for graft, you'd get a very low type of people in politics. Men without ambition. Jellyfish. It's hilarious, and it just comes at you rapid fire, and almost every line seems to be a punchline. Sturgis managed to give you extreme circumstances without making them seem so silly that you lost interest in the movie. Because on paper, you know, like uh, the idea of a hobo, forgive the terminology, but uh, it was 1940, you know, who... uh, uh, just sort of rises one rung up the political ladder uh, at a time until he's at the top of the political ladder is absurd, except <laughs> somehow in The Great McGinty, it actually makes sense while also sort of amusing you every step of the way. Well, and it's interesting, too, because on a certain level, it's extremely cynical about the whole process. And yet there's still kind of a warmth to it that oh, no engages question. Yeah, me. yeah, yeah, of course, of course. There's, you know, there's you, there's some good in it. No question. But yes, uh, it is incredibly cynical about the process. And it, it also just shows you that, that, that as cynical as we think we are now about uh, American politics, uh, you know, uh, we were plenty cynical uh, in 1940. And, you know, uh, and again, this movie released, you know, basically a year, a little over a year before, uh, uh, before we actually joined the fight in World War II. And you can imagine sort of patriotism and, and, and belief in our political leaders was at an all-time high. If you could pick from any film outside of the ones that TCM is running, do you have a favorite on-screen president? It could be somebody playing a real president or a fictional one. Uh, Henry Fonda and Failsafe is really my favorite. Um, uh, my favorite on-screen president. Sixty-four comes out the same year as Doctor Strangelove, but it, this uh, uh, Failsafe takes the the moment of a of an accidental nuclear war seriously, whereas Kubrick and and in in Doctor Strangelove. Uh, made it farcical. Uh, Both remarkable movies uh, taken from different books with similar ideas. And it's really terrific and interesting if you have the opportunity to see those movies together on the same night or the same weekend. It'd be a pretty good uh, film festival for you, Dr. Strange, Love and Failsafe. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Turner Classic Movie host Ben Mankiewicz in an archive interview from 2016. You can find the full interview at Beth's Cinema Junkie blog at kpbs.org. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.